Louise, hi, how are you doing? Hello, it's nice to meet you at last. Yeah, you too. <laughs> Even you too. if it is just virtually. I know, well, we, we had a bit of a stop-start conversation because I was in the car and I, I knew it was going to be difficult. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so no, this this should be good. There shouldn't be any interruptions. If there are, there are. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, where are you? Um, so I'm in Torquay in South Devon. Oh, nice. Yeah, we only lived here for um, the last couple of years. And before that, we weren't that far away um, up the road in a little place called Buckfastley, yeah. um, which was more rural. But we wanted to come here when when we started sea swimming, um, ah, okay. which started during one of the lockdowns um, or rather, you know, when it was lifted. Um, yeah. We started coming down to Torquay to swim and quickly discovered that actually it was quite a way to drive. It was about half an hour's drive to yeah. find out that the conditions weren't <laughs> weren't suitable. So uh, then a friend suggested, well, why don't you move down here? So that's what we did. So. I guess that's the obvious answer, isn't it? I mean, if yeah. uh, you can't bring the sea to you, then, no. then go to the sea. And luckily it all worked out quite quickly because um, we're in social housing and I had a big um, three bedroomed house with a dining room which was considered as, as a fourth bedroom um, that I no longer needed because my kids had all grown up and left. So we were ideal candidates for a swap to a much smaller property so that they could put a, a, a large family in that house. Ah. Otherwise, we would have been still sat waiting on the list like everyone else. So, yeah. But yeah, so we've moved to a little small house now, a little um, two bedroomed house. Um, with no garden because our house had big 300 foot garden to look after oh wow which um because we were out walking all the time when at that point and we didn't used to look after the garden which was depressing yeah yeah that yeah that must have been difficult yeah yeah all right now look before because we could sort of there's various things i'm going oh that's interesting but but before we do that um for me as well but also for for people listening we, we better know a little bit about you and 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 kind of your your backstory if you're happy to kind of go yeah. into that yeah so um i've i've always had pain right from when i was a child and mm. the doctor my mum used to take me to the doctors and they'd say oh yeah it's fine she's just got growing pains it'll go away as she grows mm. um and it never did and at the same time, I also had lots of weird things happening as a child, like chest infections out of the blue and um, and other other things that didn't seem to add up properly, which would see me on courses of the lovely um, penicillin liquid back mm. then. <laughs> um, Different which colours. I got a taste for. <laughs> it was quite nice, uh, but no, it was um, it was quite hideous, and I remember particular evening sticks in my mind where I, I was lying in bed waiting for yet another doctor's visit um, and when the doctor visited midwinter uh, he said that um, he thought I'd got bronchitis and he threw open all the windows in the middle of the winter and said you need to get yeah. some air in here for her it wasn't particularly hot um, but uh, yeah and, and that shortly followed a diagnosis of bronchitis which in later life um, with I suppose the the um, technology they've got nowadays um, 
they said no it was never bronchitis we can tell apparently from from images and stuff that it was never bronchitis so they said it was something called a, a nervous asthma i've never heard of it but i think it's part and parcel of the the weird things that you get with fibromyalgia that doesn't that don't often seem to have an explanation yeah, yeah. so that sort of as i grew and as time moved on these weird things kept happening out of the blue um and i would keep going to the doctors for answers and they would keep sending me off for tests um and things it would always come back um negative or inconclusive mm. things like they thought i had many years um and I was apparently displaying all the signs of many years. They gave me the drugs for many years um, and that worked for a little while. And then I never had it again. Right. Um, you know, I went into hospital for all those tests where they turn you upside down and do yeah. all those yeah. weird things. Um, and what else? they thought one time I'd had a what they called a mini stroke. Um, but then they discounted that as well. Um, oh, you name it, just all sorts of weird things, which I'm sure lots of other people with fibromyalgia can relate to. Yeah. Um, weird skin infections. Um, and of course, as by this time, say I'm, I'm working and your work colleagues, you know, you go back to work after a period of illness and they say, well, what was the matter then? Well, mm. I don't know. The doctor couldn't find out. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, so you, they, you didn't feel that they believed you? No, not at all. I think they just thought I was um, pulling a fast one for some time off. Mm. Um, and so that meant that when I was back at work, I was working doubly hard to try and prove I wasn't a shirker. I wasn't lazy. Yeah. Um, but of course, that was stressful as well. Uh, yeah, and really, really quite upsetting. Um, and this just sort of carried on, really, until um fast forward a bit more i've got four little children four well four children by this point um and one morning i wake up in bed and i can't move my back is completely locked out of the blue frightened the life out of me i thought i was paralyzed mm. um and the only way i managed to get over that was to very 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 gently start trying to wriggle my back and eventually free it enough to flip myself onto my side yeah. um, and again carry on wriggling until I had enough movement to be able to get out of bed um, you know and I had the kids to go and see to and just I, I didn't have time to lie around mm. once I woke oh. up um, and I suppose this would have taken me something like maybe 20 minutes to be able to just get out of bed so of course off to the doctors again um and he stuck me on the waiting list for the visit visiting um orthopedic surgeon and also said you know you need to take paracetamol and ibuprofen four times a day blah 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 um and it never because <laughs> that didn't help that didn't help and the problem was when i was up and moving i was fine but yeah. as soon as I went to bed and lay down, it all locked up again. Yeah. So it was a um, a case of trying to find something that would be working when I woke up in the next morning. Um, and that was where opioids started coming into the mix. Yeah. 
Um, eventually, I did get the appointment to see this surgeon who got me to undress to the waist and bend over whilst he ran his finger down my spine and concluded that I'd got, um, in his opinion, a degenerate disc between L5 and L6. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't make any sense to me, but... Very, very, very close. Right. You, I mean, you could be a rare person to have an L6, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I could be, I could be. So, you know, I mean, this is going back to remember, I could be, yeah. I could have got the numbers wrong. But that, that was his conclusion. Um, uh, so me merely no... by running his finger down your spine yes. and saying, bend yes. over... And, and obviously you, well, I mean, I'm assuming he allowed you to tell him your story. Not much of it. No. Yeah, it was a sort of a very brief. Very brief. All he wanted to know about was this backlocking business. Yeah. Um, I don't even think I went for any imaging, but, you know, it's a long time ago. I might have just forgotten. Yeah, um, he could have been one of these rare, rare, rare surgeons that have x-ray vision, of course. <laughs> Of course, that'll be it. That'll be it. Uh, so, it's a bit harsh on orthopedic people. Sorry. <laughs> but um, anyway, so initially, uh, the doctor got me trying codeine, and codeine didn't work. Um, and then I got given. I think I ended up. Did I end up going to pain clinic before or after? I suspect I did. And I was given MST. Yeah. Um, morphine tablets yeah, yeah very relatively low dose at that point and I thought it was a miracle it worked it worked so what, what, what happened exactly um well it meant that I could take these tablets before I went to bed and I think I had to take them more often than that I think I was probably taking them twice a day yeah um but when I woke up in the next morning I could just get out of bed as if none of that had ever happened Wow. Um, so the backlocking thing completely went away. It wasn't painful anymore. Um, but they were the only tablets to be able to to achieve that. Yeah. Um, but it there was never any suggestion of when, how long I might need to take them for, um, what else I might need to do. Um, there was nothing. It was just, well, here's this prescription. Off you go. And that was, to be honest, was all I really expected at this point, you know. And and they were working. And they were working. Magic. Yeah, yeah. So you know, and I I was too busy to to think about it really to pass that. Um, but of course, over time, um, they got less effective, and I needed more. But you got to remember at this point, I don't know anything about pain. And so I assume, oh, it's getting worse again. Mm. I need more. And this is this went on for years, years and years. Really? How, how, how long, roughly? Well, overall, by the time I went into hospital to come off them, I'd been on them over 12 years. Oh, wow. Well, but we're sort of sort of gradually increasing doses. Yeah. yeah. And again, all the weird things that were happening before were still happening, but now they were worse. Um. And, you know, now we're down to things like they thought one time chest pain I had um, that got so, so bad. Ambulance was called and they had me rigged up to the, the machines they do when they think you're having a heart attack. They yeah. believed I was having a heart attack and took me off to A&E. &E. Um, and by the time they did more checks there, no real sign of anything wrong. 
So here we go. And by this time, you know, all these weird things with no answers, I'm thinking I'm going nuts. Uh, really? Because so other you, people what? think I'm making it up. So, yeah. you know, yeah. something something's wrong here. Um, but I remember one time going to the doctors for some, something else. And he said, right, Louise, while you're here, we've just had a rep in um, who has said we need to switch everybody off MST onto OxyContin. Oh, right. It's a much better drug. You won't become addicted because you're you've got chronic pain. Um, and I just agree. I just went along with it because he was a doctor. You know, yeah. what did I know? So yeah. and a better drug. Well, that sounded that sounded good. Um, so off we go down that road. Now, that is the time. That is the point where my wife, Karen, thinks is the beginning of the down spiral but whether it was in fact or whether that's you know I don't know because it takes it took a long time Mm. um and that was how we went on gradually the the um symptoms got worse the doses got larger and I think I skipped a part in there somewhere where I ended up having to give up work. I had, so along with everything else, one of the things that that was affecting me, I'm going back a little way in the story now. Um, This was actually before, no, it isn't before. I was, I used to suffer with the most horrendous periods, you know, that, I didn't always. This was something that that developed. Right. So uh, it wasn't. It wasn't from the beginning of. No, it wasn't something I'd always periods. struggled with. Right. This, it came this, on in adulthood. Yeah, and it sort of came on after I'd had my four children. Ah, okay. Um, and it was so bad. I was having to take like two or three days off work each. So month. we thought. I mean, it was. Pain was the main yeah. thing, was it? The pain, and and at this point, I'm not on the um, the opioids, and it it just it got so bad anyway that in the end, they I said, um, you know, what can we do? And they offered me uh, sterilization, and then it, I think. I can't quite remember the facts, whether which way round it was, but eventually I ended up having a hysterectomy. Right. And they said that the only reason I was about 30, early 30s, but the only or was about 36. I can't remember. now, <laughs> But they only agreed to it because apparently that's really young for a hysterectomy. And they only agreed because I'd got four children. Right. And, you know, there was no way I wanted any more. Um, yeah. So they agreed to it. Now, the pain was so bad that they said they were going to let me know what the histology showed. Mm. And and I was really, really, really scared about this. Um, I thought they're sure to come back and tell me that there was something hideous going on. They actually, the, the people that, that tested um, made a special note and somebody came to see me and said that they were they were really quite 
shocked to find the tissue was perfectly healthy. There was no apparent mm. reason to them why I would have needed a hysterectomy. Wow. So Which, how did you how did you feel when you heard that? Again, the same old, well, I didn't make it up. <laughs> no, well, no. So again, I suppose that's maybe something else that that's chalked up to the the fibromyalgia and its weird presentations. Mm. I, I don't know, but the that also impacted. It was harder to get over than I expected it to be. Um, and I know at one point they tried me on an antidepressant afterwards because I, they didn't think I was bouncing back as quickly as I should have. You mean the recovery from the operation? From the operation. Yeah. Well, which, I mean, what what was it about the uh, the post op that was so difficult? Um, I think it was the pain and the fatigue. I think now looking back with hindsight, I think things that would normally be difficult for a lot of people. They tell me it can take up to a year for women to recover from hysterectomy. Um, but I think maybe when you've got fibromyalgia, that's you can sort of double it yeah so it's even harder and I just yeah. couldn't I didn't have any energy or any strength eventually past the three month mark which I think is how long you weren't supposed to drive and all this business I did go back to work um but fast forward again to all the other things happening I'd moved house and I was back to work and I was doing okay but I worked nights then because I had the kids and I just could never oh, wow. get wow. back to doing it like I did before. And I loved my job. I was a care assistant yeah. um, in a nursing home and I couldn't I couldn't cope, I couldn't cope with the fatigue. Um, and yeah, it was just it was just a real struggle. So, ended so, up so up. sorry, can I just re recap just, just to get the story cl clear? So you, you had the you had the operation, you had the hysterectomy. Mm. And um, and how long were you off work for as a care assistant? A good three to four months. OK, so but you had but you were the, the kids were at home. Yeah. Yeah. And how so how I, old were the kids at that point? The kids were really quite young. So my youngest um, would have been about two. Oh, wow. So, right. So you're, I mean, you're not like feet up eating grapes, are you? No. So, so you, no. you're probably wanting to go back to work to get some rest. And at that point, I had a husband oh. and the husband had to go back to work. Um, so, you know, I didn't have anybody else really to, to help me. Um, yeah. My mother um, had ill health as well, so she couldn't really um, help. So I just had to muddle through really were you were you caring for your mum no not at that point she she wasn't that poorly um but she was just not well enough to come and help me okay but that was that a, that was a concern as well yeah 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 so, so uh, you know when you look back if you think now you know again with hindsight the 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 um whole trauma informed thing i'm fully behind all that mm. um i think it does play a major part uh, and I can, you know, I ha I suffered a lot of um, loss in my life as well. So all mm. of which impacted, I think, more than I realised, starting from when I was little and my dad left. 
you know and and then my grand died and and other people died and it was just you think you deal with this stuff but I don't think you do really I think unless you actually have some counseling with someone and to talk it through you don't deal with it you just stick it in a box and on in your backpack someone recently yeah. said to me um and yeah and I think it just comes back to bite you um so you felt you kind of you accumulated not on purpose obviously but you know all these things you know yeah. serious life things life events as we call them yeah um and just and kind of just carried them around and got on as best as best you because that's all you knew I, I mean yeah you don't have another you to compare it to do you? No. you just you know you have your way your your world view that's conditioned from all the upbringings and all the rest that's of it, it and you just you just get on and then until maybe one day you kind of go hmm yeah that's it and I mean they they threw in some antidepressants at this point I remember they tried me on Prozac and it nearly sent me round the bend um and I had to phone phone the GP surgery and I was literally crying down the phone to them and I said look you've got to you've got to change this stuff because I can't stop crying and yet mm. it was a weird sort of a weird feeling because I didn't I wasn't upset but I could not physically stop myself crying um I mean, again, if you look back, I I, sh I don't think I should have ever been given them. But anyway, <clears throat> the later on, um, after the whole thing where they've stuck me on OxyContin, I'm not working. Um, after not long after that, I have to give up altogether, um, and I end up as a single parent. So. <laughs> You know, here's more more trauma. Um, but I think I'm quite happy overall. Um, but my health is getting worse. And I think it's so insidious. It's so when you when you try and tell someone, it sounds like, wow, it's bum, bum, bum. But no, it wasn't. It was quite over a period of years. Um, these things gradually creep in. Um and yeah i suppose i'm trying to think when it all sort of it started it started to get a lot worse after my mum died i know i remember that um and i this is where i had a my first long-term relationship with a woman right. um and that turned out to be uh really hideous mm. um she wasn't very well and i didn't know this and she also had two children so then i ended up being a carer for her and looking after six children and it just it got quite nasty uh, she would have these weird drop attacks mm. um and there was no real sort of explanation for that but anyway it, it all went quite bad um and we ended up splitting up and i was on my own again um and i was on my own for quite a while until i met my wife now karen and uh, we've been together she'll kill me but i can't remember if it's 15 or 16 years <laughs> <laughs> i should be in trouble <laughs> um and you know and I wasn't I wasn't too bad when we met but I was on an awful lot of medication 
um i was on some kind of liquid which i can't remember what it was now but it was meant to be for sleep but that wasn't what it was given to me for i think it was an antidepressant thing that helped you sleep as well uh, and I remember all the antidepressants, whether well, both the antidepress- antidepressants I ended up on long term were given initially for pain. Yeah. Um, they were duloxetine and, and sertraline. And um, I used to have this other thing where I would get really panicky. Um, and then they started to prescribe diazepam when needed. Um, and I would get really, really, really highly anxious to the point where I was worrying that my um, family might crash their car and die, you know, and it's so when you when you say it like that, it sounds ridiculous. But to me, it was a real concern. And yeah. so um, this is why I had this diazepam stuff to, to calm me down. Um Again, weird, just weird stuff that would come on out of the blue and then be gone as quick as as it came. Yeah. Um, yeah. And gradually, my mobility start to get affected and I'm putting on weight. And as I'm getting bigger, I think that's making my mobility worse, although that's not, not how I saw it at the time um and i <laughs> this is when i saw my first um orthopedic surgeon for pain in my feet mm. um really awful awful pain in my feet and upon i don't know if it was x-rays or what sort of scanning he did on them but apparently um this was the this was the words uh, i had crumbling toe joints <laughs> mm. I mean, I mean how, how did you respond to that? What was that like? To hear terrified. That? <laughs> terrified. So um, initially, the, the idea was to give me some injections, uh, steroid injections, which would help. And also a problem with my midfoot. So if you can imagine when you've got a lace up shoe on yeah. where the top, where the last bit of the laces came, I had awful pain in there as if I'd yeah. done laces up too tight. Yeah, I know. What you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I ended up having to wear Crocs 24-7 because I couldn't bear anything else um, on my feet. Anyway, he did these injections and they were OK. They they worked quite well um, until my toes were, were literally were really, really painful. And, you know, they may have been they may have been. Um, I don't know something was could have been wrong because i i got up to 25 stone in the end um so it's possible there was something really like that going on and i just i just don't like the the wording really well, the crumb you mean crumbling crumbling toes, toes. like people hear I mean, about their their spines disintegrating and things like that and yeah. <laughs> the thing is is that you know even if even if part of you goes well that's ridiculous how can i have crumb you can't just you know yeah how can that you know it's still a very powerful message when yeah. you're told that by a by a consultant yeah and then you know even your brain kind of going we've got crumb we've got crumbling toes yeah i mean it's inevitable that that there's going to be a load of protection going on yeah which you're not not consciously no no so 
I had two operations, one on one on each foot, not at the same time, um, which then saw me laid up for weeks with um, initially my foot was heavily bandaged and then I had a special boot to wear and I don't think it was ever in cast, but I, it was really, you know, I couldn't put full weight on it while it was. So did you say both feet or one? Yeah, one at a time. One at um, a time. But yeah, he he fused one, a lot of toes, um, and he did something slightly different with when he did the second operation because it had moved on a bit. So, but I've got my my. If you imagine the two toes next to my big toe, I yeah. can't move them independently because they've been right. seen to. <laughs> yeah. uh, but. And for a while, he would still do that injection every now and again. Um, but ultimately, I still have pain in my feet. <laughs> I still have pain occasionally. Um, I just deal with it differently now and I don't let it take hold like it did back yeah. then. So, so that how, makes how long ago me, was that? The operations were quite a long time ago. I mean, I've been off opioids six years and they did those ops. A good couple of years before that okay um maybe so yeah it's going back a fair while um and i kept on having them having the jabs for about 12 18 months after i came off the opioids because he said he was really happy to to do the injection still because he could see the difference in me since coming off opioids. I used to get wheeled in in a wheelchair. Yeah. And, you know, when I came off opioids, I lost eight and a half stone really easily. Um, yeah. And I was out walking all the time. And, and so then the injections were more about keeping me mobile rather than mm. just making me comfortable. Yeah, I mean, look, that that's a big deal coming off the the opioids. So, tell tell me about that. Well, so yeah, so just before that happened, so Karen was my became my full time carer. She was doing everything, um, literally my full time carer, and I wasn't engaging with anybody really. I wouldn't make plans because I never knew how I was going to be on that day. I was anxious all the time. I kept thinking people were um, talking about me behind my back. You know, I was really sort of how you get, I think, in these sorts of situations. Um, I wouldn't answer the phone. I wouldn't even answer the phone to family if I could avoid it. Um, Karen would pop out and get shopping and then worry about how I was and, and come back. So her life was was really revolving around me um, and how I was. I would talk to my grandson on uh, FaceTime. Uh, he was only like two at the time, but he used to like talking to me on FaceTime and carrying the phone around in his toys while while he played. Um, but I would doze off and Karen would have to nudge me to wake me up because, you know, I would fall asleep. Right. Um, I developed sleep apnea, um, which a lovely physio I still in touch with occasionally discovered by accident um, because I went to see her about something else and she suspected from what I was saying 
So mm. she entered some things into the computer and said, yeah, I think you've got sleep apnea. And so sent me off for an assessment and I ended up with a full face machine. Yeah. Um, but Karen used to worry that I would just stop breathing in my sleep because if she was um, awake in the night, I would just stop breathing and she would see that. And just before the point of panic, I would start breathing again. And so, yeah, it was terrifying for her. Mm. Um, but I've since found out that apparently sleep apnea is a contraindication and you should stop someone's opioids if this develops. But um, and of course, we know opioids suppress the, you know, interfere with the breathing. Mm. Anyhow, um, so yeah, I went to the doctor. What happened was I went, I was still in crippling pain. Um, I think, I, I can't remember what the dose I was on of, of the Oxycontin. I think it was something like 320 milligrams morphine equivalent plus diazepam plus codeine plus the two antidepressants. Um, and I was... Oh, and, and the oxynorm as well. Um, and just in crippling pain, I couldn't bear the cat walking across my lap. If you touched me, it felt like you'd thumped me. I was in a right state. So I went back and to the doctor. So despite all this medication. Yeah, yeah. But what you've got to understand here is that I still don't know anything. Um, still nothing else has been has been suggested. Um, and I'm assuming my fibromyalgia is getting really, really bad now. Um, and when uh, you say bad, what what do you remember what you thought was actually happening in your body? I just well, I just thought. I mean, I, I suppose even though I'd heard a little that fibromyalgia wasn't supposed to be able to kill you, I thought I was dying. I think that's what I thought. I think I thought I was because, I mean, I looked hideous. I felt hideous. I was in crippling pain. I must be dying. Well, that's the, well, that's all the evidence you had. Did, there was nothing counter to that, was there? No. That was that. That was the experience you were having. Yeah, I was always at the doctors for one thing or another, and they, you know, they always were very sympathetic. But there was nothing really they could do unless one of these weird things cropped up, and then they'd send me off for more investigations. You know, my hospital files were were you know, are massive. I think I've got three lots. So the, the girl, you can see them struggling. If I ever have occasion to go, they've got all these files. It's quite embarrassing, really. Um, so, yeah, so with all this in mind, I went to the doctors again in total distress, back through the revolving door in tears. I need um, a, an increase in this stuff because, you know, I can't, I'm in so much pain. Luckily for me, I'd reached the limit of what they could prescribe in general practice. So they referred me to pain clinic um and that was the beginning of the the my salvation really um when my appointment came through i eventually met the totally and utterly fantastic d burrows um the clinical nurse specialist at torbay pain rehabilitation service um although i hated her when i first met her i used to take karen to all my appointments because i couldn't trust myself to remember anything and this woman starts suggesting that actually the problem isn't my fibromyalgia and my arthritis, it's all the drugs I'm on, and in particular the opioids, and that maybe I should consider reducing and stopping. 
And I mean, stupid woman, you know, what was she on? You know, I'm on all this meds for a reason. I'm in chronic pain. What's going to happen if you take that away? I'm just going to be, you know, pain is just going to be off the scale. But over subsequent appointments, she started to, she listened to me and every appointment I would leave there in tears. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I don't know how any of these people do their jobs because it just must be distress all day long. Um, but she was lovely and she persevered and she would show me stuff on the internet like um, the Faculty of Pain Meds Opioids Aware page where it listed all the side effects of long-term use of opioids and I couldn't argue with that because it was there in black and white. Mm. So I mean uh, but it's interesting because we you know we, we as humans we are capable of being presented with you know good data good evidence and still dismiss it or, yeah. or try and you know sneak around it how did you how did you take it well initially I was like yeah right okay um and then she's starting to suggest you know all the things I now know are fantastic like um you know the the distraction stuff and mindfulness and and breathing and all this and I thought yeah what does this woman know um but in between appointments I would be sat home in the armchair with my feet up watching the telly as always and every now and again, Karen would slide the laptop across with this opioids aware page and say, just just have another look at this. Mm-hmm. And it sort of planted the seed. Uh, and I started to think, well, I, I wonder, I wonder if there is a possibility that life could be better off this stuff or at least on a lower dose. Um, and whilst I'm mulling this over, I end up having the two emergency admissions to Torbay um, for opioid-induced impaction, which right. you know, I just one Friday night. Now, you know, this, the thing about this was they were giving me sachets of, um, I think it's called Laxido. So it's like a, a, I don't know what it is, but it stops. It's supposed to prevent constipation, which is a common side effect of, yeah. of the opioids. Uh, and I was taking this twice a day, every day and it it did its job it seemed to be working fine but then one friday night i went to the toilet not even aware there was a problem i just went to the toilet and i couldn't go Mm. i couldn't go and i ended up in awful pain quite quickly in bed um rang the on-call gp and over the course of the weekend i had the on-call gp district nurse with enemas, paramedics, um, and the GP again. Monday morning, they decided that it was time to call an ambulance and get me into hospital and into theatre. Now, that happened twice in a fairly short time. It was like a few months apart. Wow. And the second time around, the theatre technicians in a bid to sort of reassure me because I was you can imagine the distress plus I felt really blimmin awful and embarrassed and ashamed and all those things we Mm. feel even though we shouldn't um so in a bid to try and reassure me they said don't worry my love we see this all the time with people on opioids it's fine and I thought then and there well you're not bloody well seeing me again (laughs) that was that was enough that was it that was enough I went back to D and I said right I'm in um, yeah. 
you know, she obviously knew about these these um, admissions. Um, and I, I just thought I need to get off this stuff before it does kill me. Yeah. Um, and because of those admissions, it gave her um, and the team the criteria to get me into um, community hospital at Newton Abbott as a bit of a guinea pig. I think I was then. I think I was the first person they'd done it with, in, certainly in community hospital, for a rapid taper. Um, and that's when I met the lovely consultant, um, Andrew Gunatilica one of the pain consultants here at Torbay. And he just looked at me and he said, so you're on all these meds, Louise? Yeah. And you're in crippling pain? Yeah. Well, then they're not working. They're not working and we need to get you off it. Uh, and this is how we'll do it. Um, are you up for that? And I thought, well, yeah, actually, I am. Yeah. And, you know, I was under no illusions. I knew it was going to be rough. Um, but by this time, that dangling carrot of a better quality of life certainly after what I'd just been through mm. was too much to to resist and I thought I've got nothing to lose because I right now don't feel like life can be any worse yeah. so let's give it a shot um, and so I went home and I think in that time I'd sort of had to show commitment by reducing the oxynorm myself at home which I did um, yeah. with with no no problem really um, and then I just waited for the phone call to say there was a bed. And when it came, I was a mixture of elation and absolute total terrified, <laughs> just fear. Yeah. Um, so that was it. So I went into Newton Abbott um, and Andrew said he was going to slash the dose by half on the first night. And he said, I promise you tomorrow morning, you're not going to be in any more pain. I didn't believe a word of it, but I thought I've got nothing really to lose. You know, well, let's wait and see. Yeah. Um, but he was right. I wasn't in more pain. Um, obviously. Can you, remember, can you remember that night? Yeah, I can. I can remember. I mean, I was in pain anyway. And again, right from before all the, the, the nasty withdrawal kicked in, there was that just sort of fear on the one hand and excitement on the other that, you know, this, this might be it. This might be the mm. moment. Um, but yeah, I quite quickly started to feel the side effects of the withdrawal and you know, there was lots of crying and anxiety and shaking, shake, shaking, um, and my taste and sense, uh, smell and all those things, all those usual things you get with withdrawal kicked in. Um, I had another drug, I can't remember what it was called now, to sort of counteract the worst. Um, but at the same time, as all these horrible things kicked in for the withdrawal, I straight away noticed other good things. So first of all was the wow i'm not in any more pain mm. and they've took away half the dose you know um and then on the wednesday the third night he halved it again so i was down to just a quarter of the dose i'd been on and he said in order to um cope with the withdrawal pace the ward because that will kick off the endorphins the body's natural painkiller and that really stuck with me. Right. 
And so I thought, walking, oh, pacing, yeah. moving. Because mm. I hadn't. You know, the day before I went into hospital, I used to wear one of these little clip-on pedometers. And the day before I went in, it had clocked up something like 15, 20 steps. And that would have been from the bed to the toilet to the chairlift and my armchair and back again. Yeah. And the day after he slashed the dose and said about this pacing, I'd clocked up 2,000 steps. <laughs> I had earphones in, listening to my music, and I just, I must have driven the nurses mad because I was just going backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, listening to my music all hours of the night and day. Um, and yeah, my pedometer thing, my little app said that I'd um, done the equivalent of the height of the Eiffel Tower, and I was <laughs> over the moon with that. Yeah. But when he came in the next time, he said um, that he wanted me to just slow down a little bit because my body wasn't used to that much activity yet. <laughs> so um, I went home at the end of the week. The important thing as well to, to say is that during that time, he and Dee supported me um, 100%. And one or other of them, they had got together and made a plan that that um, one or other other of them would come and see me every day on the ward and one or other of them would be on call by phone if the staff needed to speak to them yeah. so I was never left sort of just in the in the wind if you like mm, yeah. um, and that was really reassuring yeah um, and then I went home at the end of the week on a very very small dose which was tapered off in the next few weeks um, and that that was that Mm. I did what was it go like through. going home? It was it was fantastic because now, I mean, my family say it was as if a zombie went into hospital and a completely different person came out, and it was as if someone flicked a switch mm. and suddenly I was alive. Mm. And the person that went in couldn't that couldn't bear loud music and everyone had to be quiet because I was so sensitive to noise and all that. Um, suddenly wanted loud music and you know it was like let's go yeah <laughs> so it was a complete 360 yeah. so it, for Karen I think it was she was a bit like wow <laughs> <laughs> who's this <laughs> so which had its own problems because of course she'd gone from being a full-time carer to suddenly I didn't need a full-time carer anymore I mean, obviously, I did in the early days. I still needed a lot of support because it was rough for quite a few months. It was rough while I was getting over the worst of it. I had restless legs, which I'd never had before. Um, and I've got Facebook posts and photos and things like that to sort of chart that bit of the journey. But because of what Andrew said about the pacing, we started going out walking every single day. And I initially had a wheelie walker so we would go somewhere flat and walk just short um like a long timber seafront which isn't very long and gradually I worked up to not needing the walker and being able to use walking sticks um like walking poles and then I got rid of the poles and didn't need any aids all this time the weight's coming off because previously they'd have said to me, all the healthcare professionals I saw, so well, it's fine, Louise, you know, it's easy. You just need to lose weight and move more. But they never said how you could do that. Yeah. And I was trying every diet under the sun. Nothing was working. Yeah. And since 
um, once I met Frances Cole, she sort of explained to me that actually it was never going to happen because you didn't have all the other pieces of the puzzle. I wasn't sleeping and I wasn't moving. So the fact that I was eating well wasn't enough. Mm. Um, and plus, of course, the effect of all the drugs. So as soon as I, I was able to get off those, um, the weight started coming off, no problem. Yeah. Uh, and the walking, of course, walking all the time. Uh, so Karen and I walked almost solidly for a year. <laughs> and I would spend the evenings looking at the walk for the next day, where we were going to go, uh, while she was cooking the meal. So that was what how yeah. it went, really. That's an amazing transformation, isn't it? Yeah. And I really wish more people could do it, because apparently they don't do it with anybody anymore. Um, unless, I suppose, there might be circumstances where they still do, but... I don't think anybody has those rapid tapers in hospital anymore. Mm. I mean, there's definitely, uh, you know, an appeal for that, isn't there? I, yeah. I, I guess that, um, you know, potentially different people are going to need different things and, and there just wouldn't be enough provision to do that yeah. for everybody. But but undoubtedly, everybody needs the right kind of knowledge and support, even if they're doing it themselves at home. They need the knowledge, support and that contact, that guidance and encouragement. That is that is the crucial thing. And I mean, the, people say to me, I've heard it so many times, they, well, aren't you angry about what happened? Well, no, not really, because there's two things there. Firstly, I don't believe any of the healthcare professionals I was involved with meant me any harm. Um, and... I think there are there were faults on both sides. You I think I could have done things differently as well. I might I needn't have been so passive and I could have asked more questions and and you know, but I think I'd got so jaded of through my life um previous to that. I'd spent hours on the internet before looking for the latest um you know magic pill. Uh, lotion potion whatever spent a fortune on all sorts of things that people said would work yeah so by the time you know you get to a certain point you just think oh whatever you know if the doctor says this will work this will work um and you just yeah you become well, just i don't know so so no i'm not angry and i think if there's anger anywhere, I, I suppose I'm angry at the whole business with the whole Oxycontin thing. Um, and that whole thing we now know is a load of rubbish mm. to use, to yeah. use yeah. not use yeah. any swear words. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and the Sackler family and all that business, you know. But yeah. I instead of being angry, I thought it was far more important to use my experience to try and help other people um, and that was all thanks to Dee as well because she she invited me to go with her at the end of that year um, to um, the British Pain Society annual scientific conference in Brighton to oh, yeah. discuss to sort of talk about the experience um, and I did and it was the first time I'd driven on my own anywhere in years drove up to Brighton on my own that's quite a drive <laughs> as well it is quite a drive and I remember um, the thoroughly fantastic Felicia Cox was our chair of that session yeah. and 
I arrived early in the morning and found the room that we were going to be in because I wanted to be prepared. And when I walked in the room and saw how many rows of chairs that were in there, I was absolutely <laughs> terrified. And then she made it worse by coming in and saying, this session is the most highly subscribed of the whole event. And that's because there's a patient speaking. And Dee said, shush, I wasn't going to tell her that. <laughs> and then she asked someone else to guard the door so that I couldn't run away. <laughs> but what happened after that? So many people came up to me, healthcare professionals that had been in the audience, not only to thank me for what they recognised as a really sort of personal story, but to urge me to carry on telling it because they said they don't often at that time anyway they didn't often get chance to hear it from the patient perspective um and they felt it could be you know a really important thing to share and that was the beginning of it really. yeah because i guess at that point there were i mean now i mean it's still not a major feature it's better it mm. needs to be a lot better yeah a lot lot better um i guess that was some that was one of the earliest um, maybe yeah maybe the first i don't know it's, i don't uh, know but but it was received you, you know you felt that you were received warmly and um, yeah and people were interested definitely and i mean at that conference i also got to meet um margaret whitehead who was then the chair of the um patient liaison committee as it was then um, and she told me about the work they were doing and she said you know you if you're interested she said I'll send you a um, application form next time the committee has a vacancy um, and she did do that and that was I suppose toward the end of that year um, so I filled in the application didn't really hold out a lot of hope and I was invited for interview so I traveled up to London for that and did my interview and came away from it thinking I'd completely fluffed the whole <laughs> thing as I suppose we all do um traveled back to Devon and went to bed to recover because it had been you know a trip up and a trip back yeah and day, um, yeah. I woke up the following morning to an email congratulating me on getting the post so <laughs> so that was the first time I joined a, a committee so yeah 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 I guess I guess that you know, they that's a tricky one in a way, isn't it? Because you're you know, you're not like applying for a job per se, are you? It's more, hey, this is me, this is my experience yeah. that I've got to share with people. Yeah. Um, so that 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 others who are suffering can can get a sense of what can be achieved. I mean, obviously everyone has their own unique story. Yeah. But I am human and I did this. Mm. Therefore, maybe you can as well yeah um so that's yeah. what you were off well that's what you offer which is massive I, massive i think people are put off by coming forward to these things because it's it seems like there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through in order to help other people and you yeah. think well it shouldn't be that difficult and i think it's one of my complaints about the nhs as a whole i mean i know the british pain society is not the nhs but Again, my experience there is that to actually progress, to do anything from a patient perspective working um, in, in that field, you've got to go through so much red tape. Mm. It's like, well, what what do you think I'm going to do? You know, <laughs> I want to help you. Yeah. I don't want to come and sabotage anything. 
Um, so it needs to be made easier, I think. If they want more people to come th- come forward and help, um, it needs to be made easier. And there needs to be more recognition of the value of that. Because, you know, I don't need to tell you, I'm sure, that, that patient representatives, occasionally you might get some um, payment for for what you do. But on the whole, you don't. Um, yeah. And of course, you're not going to ask for it because that's not what it's not what it's not usually the reason people do this. No. Um, mm. But I think those of us that have been doing it for quite a while now are sort of realising that, hang on a minute. On the one hand, you're telling me that this is really valuable and that that my opinion is vital to the work you're doing. Um, but then on the other hand, you're telling me you haven't got any you know, you haven't got any money to pay for this. Yeah. And yet, at the same time or the same event, you will pay a fortune for a professional to come and speak to you. So, yeah, yeah what's the know, difference? Exactly. What, what, what is the difference? None. There is none. No, they're an there's expert no difference. because they've gone and studied it. I'm an expert because I've lived it. You know, there's, it's experts yeah. from two different sides of the coin. Yeah, absolutely. And, but that's and essentially, we need we need both. That's a whole um, other sort of, you, kind of you, words. They need each other. It's it's one. Yeah. They're not even separate. That's um, why, I mean, part of that is why I'm so excited about the work I do now with Live Well With Pain. Um, I first got involved with them and Francis Cole back in sort of that same sort of time when I was um, doing Brighton with Dee and all that sort of thing, because she was in, she knew Francis very well um, because of the work she was doing and told Francis about me and what we had done with the opioids and of course that's where Frances was concentrating a lot of her work up in Durham Leeds way um, was the opioid prescribing so she came down with um, David Andresy the the um, web man behind Live Well With Pain um, and they filmed my story which now sits on the website um, and they've called it Life After Opioids. And they mm. came down and stayed at Butfast Abbey. And we did this shoot sort of over a day. And at the same time, they filmed Karen and her perspective on being a carer. Mm. Um, that was on the website. Yes, the film is still on the website. Yeah. Um, and later she worked with Dee and... Um, Amanda Cedar C. Williams overlooked it, overlooked yeah. it, looked over it as well before the 10 Footsteps for Carers went on the website. It's not on there currently because the website just had a, an overhaul, but it's coming back on, I'm, I'm assured, sometime soon. Um, but, the, you know, they, they set up that website. They're totally not for profit. They don't have money from any any companies, actually. Um, they survive on, on grants and um pots of money they get to do a piece of work Um, and they're connected with Durham Uni and the Wolfson um, unit and I've sort of been working with them ever since and then we so we did the Footsteps Festival have you seen any other Footsteps Festival work? Well I've I've seen the social media coverage yeah so that was during lockdown a bunch of us got together I just I thought it would be cool to have a meeting of all advocates that were on Twitter really mm. and see what ideas we could come up with to help people because all the pain clinics were shut yeah, yeah. Um, and off the back of that we had loads of professionals join it as well 
Um, and we got together as a core of us that sort of got together and decided, right, let's do something. And that's where the footsteps came came mm. from the festival. And it was a bunch of professionals working with lived experience to come up with some stuff that would be online free. Francis allowed um, allowed us to host. They hosted it on their website. Yeah. Um, and and that was what we did. And loads of professionals gave their time freely to come and do something and work with us to make stuff to put on the internet. And it's it's still there. It's still going strong. We had some really lovely lovely people come along um and you know we we were even lucky enough to get irene tracy to come and do one oh wow for us so. um and they did it so that it was tailored towards people that live with pain and, and could understand so yeah it was great and now they're doing this training or we are doing this training for healthcare professionals um and the training is the 10 footsteps um to living well with pain and it's delivered by um, professionals and lived experience. And we've been training GPs, social prescribers, pharmacists, anybody really that, that has an interest in learning how to speak to people that live with pain um, okay. in primary care mostly. Um, and the training is accredited um, as well. So I think I've lost tra track how many we've done now, but I'm leading a team of lived experience people. Yeah. Um, and if anybody's interested in joining that team, they just need to get in touch. Um, and um, I'm working with Patrick Hill to devise a way of looking after those people as well. Uh, and it seems to be going really well. And it's sort mm -hmm. of off the back of that, that the, the pain cafes in Cornwall have sprung up because mm -hmm. um, Jim Huddy and his team down there um organized the training for all those people across the the pcns in cornwall and then they went ahead and set up the cafes attached to the gp practices so and it's something i would like to see rolled out across the country really yeah. because people need what you said just now people need the tools the education how do we do it how do yeah. we how do we look after ourselves other than drugs? What can we do? I hear all the time, people come in expecting drugs, Louise. Yeah, that's because <laughs> they don't know anything else. Yeah. Yeah, they don't. They don't. And that's it. I think increasingly, you know, certainly my experience is people want to know what they can do. So they, you know, they know what they want to achieve. Mm. They want to be able to do some more of this, some more of that, reconnect with this, reconnect with that, you know, whatever it may be um how to relate to the pain in a different way and what things can i do to ease my suffering you know that that kind of yeah that kind of stuff more and more they so they know that but as you said it's the know-how yeah and i think that the know-how bit is is the is is something that's that's never really been done very well even even sort of basic mm. um physio for someone who has sprained their ankle like you do these exercises there's never enough detail in the know-how no. no you know how do i prepare how do i get in the best state before how do i decide how much to do what is success yeah so because too many people measure success on on an absolute outcome which could be miles in the distance so yeah. they're totally focused on something that's that's not happening right now meanwhile yeah. not focusing on what they could be doing that's a step in that direction that's it 
So we're so, so focused on outcomes and results. We, we miss out on what's really yeah. happening. So it's helping people with these insights and then putting that into a practical plan where yeah. they go, right, I know what I'm doing and how I'm going to do it. Yes. And, and off I go. And I mean, there's a worry now that because of the, the whole, um, you know, the nice guidance saying that you shouldn't prescribe um, opioids for chronic pain, which I totally agree with as a first line. I don't think they should initially. Um, but you need to. So the people that are already on that need something else. And you can't just expect to start tapering off when you haven't had the discussion with them about the whys. Why is it bad for them? What might it be doing to them? and what are you going to do instead yeah it's got to be replaced with something hasn't it yeah. but there's but there's got to be that understanding you know with the the modern understanding if you like of of what we experience our perceptions our sensations yes. being being hugely influenced by how we think the expectation effect the predictions the anticipation yeah. you you have to really inform the person and make sure that they understand as well you I mean, can't just is, sort of the the you're aware of the flipping pain campaign yeah. You know, I think the stuff they're doing is really good as well for, for sort of educating the public. And I mean, Cormac Ryan and his faulty car alarm. I love that story. Um, but anything that gets the information out there to the public, there's lots of good stuff out there now, but people need to be able to find it. And it's I think yeah. it's up to the healthcare professionals that are seeing people to say, look, you know, you need to have a look at this. I'm fed up of being told that there's not enough time. You know, this is a huge problem. It's one of the biggest problems affecting people in, in the UK and probably in most parts of the world. In the world, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's there is no quick fix. And these discussions are going to take time. But if you want to do anything, seriously want to do anything about the opioid, the overprescribing of opioids and antidepressants and um, and all the rest of it, you need to start by making time to listen to people and giving them the tools to start helping themselves. You can't just expect to give them a prescription and it'll just go away. Yeah. You know, neither can you pass the buck and put it all onto people like social prescribers and expect them to be able to do it either. Not without upskilling people um, to be able to, to have that conversation. And, yeah. you know, it's scary, pain is scary. And the idea of taking people's one thing that they believe, like I did, is their lifeline away is the scariest thing of all. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it takes that 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 connection with the person and then that, that caring approach, the compassionate approach as you're explaining and, and then guiding and supporting. And, yeah. and that, you know, you're living proof that that can happen. Yeah. It's interesting because I think, I don't know if we were chatting about this on the phone, um, but um, there are various projects. Um, certainly there's one, I'm pretty sure it's in Africa, where they're using, I can't remember what term they're using, but essentially um, lay people are be being mentors, coaches, mm. um, call, use AA terminology, sponsors. Mm. And this is the same kind of thing that you're talking about here, I suppose. And I was chatting to Charles about this as well, you know, because he was asking me, do you think pain coaching is something that a non-professional could do? And, mm. and the answer to that is yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because if you know the role of that guide and support and encouragement and also being able to say to that person, hey, you know, I get, I get, I hear what you're saying, I get your needs. 
this is where you can go. Yeah. So, so you've got clear kind of boundaries. Everyone knows what, what they're doing. But it means there's far more support out there for people yes. from yeah. people who really care and have the time and, and the the inclination to do that. Yeah. And, and, and who actually get it. Um, and I think I don't know, I think there's something about putting the two together. So the, one of the, the reasons I really love the, the idea of these cafes is that it, they can be run by people like me um and and charles and, and all the rest of them um but but having access right there to the professionals as well if if the people need you know if that's what's needed and if i think when the, when you do you put it in you work together to provide something it's more credible as well so yeah. the people that are coming into the cafe think, OK, so on the one hand, we've got this guy who's highly trained um, and knows what he's talking about. And over here, we've got this person who has been through it, so knows mm. how I'm feeling, you know, and you put that together. And I think it's unstoppable. You know, yeah. I think that's really, really powerful for people. It is. That's really powerful. It's really potent because. Because, you know, understandably, some people might be like, OK, well, yeah, OK, you're an expert in pain, but you don't know what it's like. Mm. And the two things are different. And, and there's more and more interest, thankfully, in, in the phenomenology of this. So, the, yeah. you know, the lived experience, a lot more being said and spoken and recognizing that, that that's a different, you know, the lived body is different to the biological body. Yeah. Um, but but we need to you know bring it together we need to have explanations which bring that that together yeah but acknowledging you know the two the two things there the other um, thing that really excites me is of course is the whole stuff that that people like josh pate and that are doing with their research over in my goodness knows i can't remember where he is now it's canada or australia but but in childhood um teaching children about pain because i think yeah. that's where we need to start because yeah. You know, children, I mean, most of us, I think, probably grew up with that whole thing of, you know, if you fall over and hurt your knee, never mind, you know, mummy will make it better. Mm -hmm. And then when mummy can't make it better, the doctor will make it better. Somebody other than you will make it better. Yeah. Um, and we don't actually teach anything about about pain and what 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 we can do to make it better. Um, so I think by. You know, he's got a set of books out, I think. Um, Zach and Zoe's Pain Hacks, I think they're called. I'm mm -hmm. dying to get my hands on them. Um, but that is what we need to be looking at, educating children so that they grow up with a more realistic expectation of healthcare, and, uh, you know, a better knowledge and understanding of, of how to look after themselves uh, before and when they get pain. So... Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. It's funny you say because you know, I have that conversation when when talking to someone and and listening to their story and then and then kind of going through some of the things to help them understand their their pain and they kind mm. of and you know most people kind of understand it um, quite quickly often but it's, um, and and then they there's some people sort of oh well you know why why don't I get this or why why wasn't I told this sort of thing and and I sort of jokingly say oh. Well, you did you did not go to that lesson at school. <laughs> no one has the lesson in no. school about pain, about how we what we can control, what we can't, how we relate to things, how thoughts aren't facts. You know, all these really good, important life skills that are so yeah. useful, not just for pain, but right across for the board. Yeah. You never get taught. 
I know. Let's just keep teaching maths till you're 18. Just an idea. Say let's that. do that. You know, brilliant. Yeah, let's spend a fortune on keeping kids in school to learn more maths. Yeah. yeah. So you I know, that's still brilliant. to this day never used algebra. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's but but you know these kinds of conversations, Josh's work. Us, to, you know, us talking and then talking to other people and then doing things. And, you know, I've had a few schools that have asked me to go and talk and you right. probably will as well. And, you know, and it's just kind of it's slow, isn't it? But we're doing it and getting out there and your work and is is it's invaluable sad. and inspiring. Thank you. And, and, you know, the other sad thing is we were talking, I forget who I was talking to the other day. And I was saying that, you know, we that work are now working in the, in this area have met some of the most fantastic um, healthcare professionals. Um, and so I've learned a wealth of stuff from all of these people. And, you know, we know there are good clinicians, but they aren't everywhere. And, you know, so we need to sort of, I think some, I have to say it, some GPs need to be better at saying I don't know that I don't understand that because they're not gods you know they are human beings and mm. I think they allow us to believe that they know it all and of course they don't yeah that's so, that's the system though isn't it you know the the medical the classic medical education is is about that about they know mm, it's um, and it's, it's everybody but yeah. Yeah. The GP, I think the GP gets a lot of flack because he tends to be, or she tends to be the first person we see. Yeah. Um, so that's the one yeah. that sort of sticks in your mind. But yeah, yeah. it's a very difficult position because they see, you know, umpteen yeah. people and there's there's all sorts of pressures. And as you know, you know, it's uh, to really listen to someone, you've got to be present oh, and, and it's very easy. You know, you've got another 20 people and, and you want to spend time with this person. But, you know, if you do that, yeah. then da, da, da. it's a real it's I a real cannot, challenge. I couldn't do the job and I cannot mm. imagine what it's like to see, you know, countless people in a day that are distressed, especially people that they know with chronic pain. There's not very much they can do about it. Um, I spoke to a doctor recently who was celebrating the fact that he was able to, he was a consultant, was able to spend time um, doing some um, Botox injections for people that were suffering with um, bad headaches. Yeah. Uh, and he was so thrilled to have had a day doing that because he knew that worked, you know? Yeah, yeah less and conversation as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... But but there, but there are ways. I mean, when I've done training with GPs on, on you know, helping them to understand chronic pain and what they can do, you know, there are ways that, that you can you can do it. There are systems you can put into place, but it takes a bit of time to set that up. So they've got to kind of create that time to to set up different systems and, and have their, their yeah. book of resources that they can go to. But once that's in place, then that's actually they, you know, they can spread appointments out. They can book double and, you know, and these, these kinds of things. So that it's re they're ready rather than it's proactive rather than reactive. What's but, sad, um, I think, is that since COVID, the public have got this perception that GPs aren't seeing anyone. They are not working. And it's like, again, if you work with with people, you know that that's not true. So why is nothing being done to sort of 
pass that on to the public. So it's like, I suppose, I mean, I don't want to be political, but maybe it's not on the agenda. Nobody wants to make it clear. I don't know. But everyone I speak to is bashing their GP practice because they're not seeing patients. And that seems to be the case. I mean, we get we get messages all the time from ours saying, please don't come because we've got a load of sickness and, you know, we've got no staff. And and that's the message everywhere. So although we've got TV messages telling us that that, um, you know, you must come to the doctor in reality, you can't you can't see them. So, but nobody seems to be addressing the the fact that actually the GPs aren't happy either. Mm. GPs, I mean, most GPs I've spoken to aren't happy with the current state of things of how they are they are having to work. Um, and in fact, I think I've heard that loads have left the profession since because it, you know the stress is just I can't imagine it. No, it's. No, it's it's you know there's there's stories being told and then there's the reality and you know of course GPs are working but it's it's different it look you know it looks very different mm. and of course as soon as you don't get an appointment you know people get upset and as yeah. you said distressed um, and and so they then have that story they then have that that experience but um, but you know that that's all going on I mean coming back to the to the sort of the pain side and the work you're doing I mean undoubtedly you're coming across as being very optimistic about you know you've already mentioned you know three or four really good projects largely involving people like you Um, it's a bottom-up thing it's like a revolution because it's not going to come top down it's going to come from a demand from society You've got to change the way you're doing things because we already know what works better. Yeah. We know the models. We 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 know the evidence. We know the science as well. Yeah. So you you know, you're out of date up there. You need to change it. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest, my biggest complaints at the moment is with the Department for Work and Pensions. Because, you know, I do I, I'm a walk leader. I do two Ramblers Wellbeing walks. Um, and I do lots of stuff sort of locally as well. And I'm forever being told by people things like, well, I can't I can't be seen to be going out, getting a walk every day because, you know, if my neighbour picks up the phone, I'll lose my benefits. Mm. Um, and this happens. You know, this is the reality. And not only that, but there's this whole thing as well about the, the what drugs you're on. If you're not on um, all the heavy duty drugs, then DWP deems that you're you're not that bad and actually you're fit for work. And that happens too. So people, that's a very real fear for people. And the other problem is that, you know, as way I see it, is that they're not even in line with the current NICE guidance because, you know, that's saying people shouldn't be on that stuff anyway. But the diagnosis they've got is still the same. But the way I see it is that if, you know, I was lucky to be in the position of having to ask for a review when I was ready for it. I was on that unlimited DLA because they'd written me off, if you like. I'd had that many claims that life was never going to change. So before it changed to PIP, I need I didn't need to do another assessment. But because I had improved in my own time, I asked for a review. They really saw that I was not on any drugs. And that was it. I think that was the clincher because I've still I've still got fibromyalgia. I'm still yeah. not fit to go out and get a nine to five job. Um but I'm better than I was. Mm. But it was. It came back. They, they didn't even downgrade it. They just withdrew it completely. But I was ready for that. 
Right. Okay. But okay. but most people aren't. So yeah. they would rather sit on the sofa. In in a way, it's it feels to me like the DWP are incentivizing people to stay home on drugs on their sofa because that way they get the money they need. Yeah. Because you know it's not a case of being able to suddenly get better and go back to work. That takes years. You know, my wife now has gone from being a full time carer to being a full time worker, and she loves it. You know, she had over over 12 years not working um, and now she's back to full time work. And I am on the verge of becoming um, self-employed. And, you know, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. So change does. It can happen. But you need to be supported by these agencies. People would be more likely to take small steps to improving their health. And as they make those improvements, they feel like doing more. So people yeah. will feel like to going back to work and and getting a job. It might not be what yeah. they used to do, but who cares? Um, yeah. You know, if you want to if you want to get a society that's more, what do they what do they look at? You know, people a more productive society. Mm. Um, then that's you know you need need to make these changes because currently, mm. you know, we know that the places with the biggest amounts of poverty have got the most amounts of people in chronic pain. Um, and so, therefore, it follows that there will be the highest amounts of benefit claimants. Um, but nothing is being done to sort of really help that. And again, it's not rocket science. Just help no. these people. And no, I mean, you're, you're talking about putting into place support in different ways and encouragement and guidance that helps people focus on what kinds of things would make you a bit happier what kinds of things would make you a bit healthier step by step so kind of watering the right seeds water those seeds put the support in place create the right environments for that yeah and then funnily enough stuff grows yeah look after it it's amazing isn't it Whoa. I mean, that's that's the whole basis of nature, isn't it? I mean, yes. as you said, it's not it's not rocket science. But the problem is, is, well, the problem is that everything's seen as problem focused or, or yeah. deficit focused rather than looking at what could work and how to build it. And I tell you something um, else, there's nothing that could be nothing worse. I mean, it, luckily, it's not happened to me, but I've heard accounts from other people then going to be called for a review of your disability money and having to sit down and explain to somebody who is not at all medically trained um, and they're having to, the, you know, they're making a decision on whether or not you can continue on your money. It's like, come on, you know, it, this is just getting silly now. Yeah, yeah, I'm, unfortunately there's that that sort of thing happens in in various sort of fields to do with health the wrong kind of people making making assessments yeah. but um i guess we better we better sort of come to some sort of conclusion because i think we could talk for a long time and look i can only conclude that you know you i mean your story i mean thanks for sharing it it's um very generous of you and i know that you you know you're making that your purpose and yeah. you're doing lots of you said I think before we started recording things are busy I mean wow yeah you just described a whole bunch of things you're doing and the the rambling and the different groups and the cafes and, and those all those different things um so I, I hope within that you're you're looking after yourself as well yes um where where, where can people uh, sort of follow you and uh, keep a tab on what's what you're up to 
Oh, God, just about everywhere now, I think, apart from TikTok. I have, apparently, I my grandson was shocked to find I have got a TikTok account, but I haven't done anything on it yet because I've got oh, right. no idea how it works. So I'm on, um, Twitter is Lulu Scorpio, and I've got a LinkedIn account under my name and a Facebook account, but we've also got Walking Works Wonders on Facebook and Twitter, um, and the Winner Street Walkers on Facebook and Twitter, uh, so yeah there's there's all sorts of places and okay. my email is there as well so you know I can't obviously I can't help people um you know I'm not medically trained so I can only I can only offer support peer support um but I also run a Facebook group actually that that's the for taper peer support group for tapering of all the dependence forming drugs um that's been running for a couple of years now and that's got quite a lot of people in there and again it's it, you can't get um advice on your particular medication but you can get peer support on you know how difficult it is so yeah so i'm all over the place and i'm happy to to connect with people yeah okay fantastic well look i'll put um i'll put all those links on the page on the show okay, page super. so people can um can check it all out um, but listen, thanks so much for for making the time and uh, and sharing, as I said, your your amazing story and and how you brought that around into to doing the great stuff you're doing now. Thank you, and I mean, and thanks to you as well because you know I've I've been looking at all the stuff you do, and I really love the messages that you you um, you put on your social media as well. So yeah, you are one of the clinicians that gets it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, thank. Well, look, let's chat about maybe doing some stuff together. Yeah, we're, that's we're starting cool. to do that, so we'll, yeah. we'll we'll pick up on that for sure. Brilliant. Okay. Super. All right, lovely to you. Take care. And you. Bye for now. Bye.